Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to Live Like You Were Dying, recorded by Tim McGraw and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Tim Nichols. With over a dozen top five singles on the Billboard Country Chart, the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Famer has been a hit machine for years. Later in the show, we'll get the lowdown on some of his biggest songs, including Heads Carolina Tales California by Jody Messina, That'd Be Alright by Alan Jackson, The Man I Wanna Be by Chris Young, and of course the unprecedented success of that Tim McGraw classic. Part one. So, you know, we're always asking our guests, you know, what were your formative musical experiences? What right. were the bands that you were listening to that, that sort of, you know, affected you as a writer and as a musician? And it's funny, you know, I, I thought no one's ever asked me that question. Hmm. And has anyone ever asked you that question? No, no one cares what I think about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, you know, let's take a moment to ask one another that question, e- even in, in the form of like, you know, the first shows, like first shows that you went to, right? That you remember that that you know made an impact, or at least live in your memory. So, and I know that you have every ticket stub for every show that you've ever gone to. That's so you pretty can just much true. Yeah, pull up the physical database. <laughs> um, I, on the other hand, have to you know resort to my memories, half of which are lies. Right, right. But who can who can disprove them? Yeah, not you. So, the first concert I remember going to with my parents, okay, was in Memphis. Um, we drove three hours from Nashville to Memphis. My dad was like a budding songwriter at okay. the time. And Kathy Matea had, I think, I think had recorded a song that, that he wrote, or maybe they were just kind of friends and she was kind of starting her career, but she was opening for Don Williams Okay, at Mud Island in Memphis. Wow. And I remember like being taken to this Don Williams concert with my folks for years and years and years, I've always said my first concert was Amy Grant, because I was I went to see Amy Grant at Starwood Amphitheater yeah. in in Nashville when I was like seven or eight years old. Uh, but I recently remembered this earlier thing because I was sort of brought along <laughs> in primal scream therapy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I was uh, I was sort of brought along by my parents, so it wasn't really like oh I asked to go to this thing, but that's my earliest. Yeah. Concert memory, and actually, I don't have the ticket stub for that one, so I, maybe that's why it doesn't really. It's count. so on brand, though, that your first show is Don Williams. My <laughs> word, like <laughs> the Gentle Giant. Yeah, you, you couldn't have written any better. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I do know that um, Amy Grant was the first concert that like I wanted to go to as a kid, and the first rock concert that I went to was me and my dad. We went to see Steppenwolf. Yeah, and the opening band was called Head East. Was that at a gun show? I remember Head East. <laughs> it was it was at Starwood Amphitheater, but they didn't sell enough tickets, so the the back like lawn section they just closed. Okay, so everybody got to sit in the seats. Nice. We had bought lawn tickets, but we got upgraded the seats. So Head East played. Uh, Steppenwolf then played after that. I I really liked it. I had a great yeah, time. Man. Um, 
And I remember it was a few years after that that I saw Spinal Tap for the first time, and I was like, this is Head East, kind of. Right. <laughs> well, my first concert, and I'm not counting all of the uh, Sunday night camp meeting revival things I went to at my church where, you know, this or that Southern Gospel Quartet happened to be singing. As well you shouldn't. Right. Uh, it was <laughs> Chicago on the Chicago 17 tour. Well, wow. It would have been either 84 or 85. It was at the Murphy Center uh, at MTSU. Yeah. And uh, my whole family went, my sister and some of her friends, and I was kind of the tag-along little brother right. that went. And when, when I kind of tell people, you know, how old I am, or right. I, I want to make a reference to how old I am, I, I will tell them, the first concert I ever went to, the opening act was a comedian. <laughs> that's how old I am. <laughs> because that's like... It's, <laughs> And there was a comedian who came on open for Chicago. And that's, that just seems very much like an Elvis 70s kind of thing. Like I'm in the showroom at the Hilton and right. Sammy Shore is coming out and warming up the crowd with some jokes, you know. Um, that's I, saw, a, I saw James Brown one time at the uh, Ryman Auditorium in Nashville and the opening was the uh, Dynamite guy. He <laughs> <laughs> did wow. stand-up comedy. Yeah. Um, and that was in the 90s. You know, the next show that I remember going to, and I don't know if it was my second show or if it's just the second thing that I remember, uh, we went to Starwood to see Al Jarreau with Take Six opening. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it took a long time for me to go see anything that was like even remotely heavy. <laughs> like all of my first concert experiences were right. super tame. All of the music you heard at your first concerts as a kid is the same as the music that I heard at the dentist office <laughs> as yeah, a kid. Yeah. Yeah, and everything was kind of jazzy. Everything, yeah. I mean, Chicago was kind of jazzy. Yeah. Um, Did your were your parents wearing like polo shirts with the collar turned up and? No, uh, I was the sweater uh, <laughs> around their waist. And <laughs> uh, I I think uh, who knows what what they were wearing. I'm pretty sure that I was wearing some pastel like op shorts or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, and then in high school it was all about uh, the classic rock shows that were coming right. through. Starwood was great for that. So it was Steve oh, yeah. Miller Band. Um, it was Elton John. Oh, you. You know, actually, I take that back. I went to see Elton by myself when I was like 15 hmm. at the Grand Ole That's Opry one house. Does. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I remember you and I went to see Steve Miller, and he was wearing um, black socks pulled black up shorts. with sneakers, and it looked like somebody's dad that had just got done mowing the lawn. Yeah. And we were like, <laughs> does this guy have like a wife or something that maybe could mention like, hey, <laughs> right. wear some jeans? Right. Yeah. I also remember <laughs> that his feet were like, you know, kind of spread apart, but his knees were touching. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall that specifically, but sure. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I like that your family's like the whole formative years are like, you know, son, we're going to see some music tonight. That's a little more edgy. It's a <laughs> fellow named Billy Ocean. And uh, <laughs> so we think you're mature enough to handle it. <laughs> I, I did go to my mother's aerobics class once. It was the first time I heard Caribbean Queen. <laughs> nice, nice. But uh, yeah, well, so in this interview with Tim today, he mentions he used to work at um, Opryland. Yeah, and there's a about a hundred percent chance that we saw him. Yeah, we probably did because when we yeah. were kids, Opryland. That's probably the first real music that that's true. I was exposed to as a kid, as they had all these little stage shows. I hear America singing. Yep. And then the, over by the uh, Duwa Diddy City, they had a little fifties review. Yeah. And uh, I probably absorbed a lot of early music that way. Actually. Hard to hear the shows over the bleeding at the petting zoo and the sound of the wooden wood chimes <laughs> that the guy's making over there behind you. But if, if you got right. the right seat, right, 
then you could hear Gary Morris <laughs> or whomever it happened to be. Yeah, yeah. So I would say Opryland is pretty influential there in the early days of uh, of my early musical experiences. Um, so yeah, thanks Tim Nichols. Well, yeah, let's let's uh, hear from Tim. You know, what, one of our earliest influences. <laughs> Little did we know. Part two. Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame inductee Tim Nichols has written more than a dozen top five country hits, including I'm Over You by Keith Whitley, Heads Carolina, Tales California by Jody Messina, This Ain't No Thinkin' Thing by Trace Adkins, I'd Rather Ride Around With You by Reba McIntyre, I'll Think of a Reason Later by Leanne Womack, That'd Be Alright by Alan Jackson, Girls Lie Too by Terry Clark, I Still Miss You by Keith Anderson, The Man I Want to Be by Chris Young, and Cowboys and Angels by Dustin Lynch. Nichols is perhaps best known as the co-writer of Tim McGraw's Live Like You Were Dying, which stayed at number one for seven weeks, won a Grammy for Best Country Song, and was named Song of the Year by the Country Music Association, the Academy of Country Music, BMI, ASCAP, Billboard Magazine, and the Nashville Songwriters Association International. It remains the only song to have won every major song award presented for country music. The list of other artists who've recorded Nichols' songs includes Blake Shelton, Faith Hill, Jason Aldean, Patti Loveless, Vince Gill, Montgomery Gentry, Kenny Chesney, Lone Star, Rascal Flatts, Brad Paisley, Kenny Rogers, Tracy Bird, Gretchen Wilson, Ronnie Millsap, and many more. Tim, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You know, I understand that you didn't actually start taking guitar lessons until you were a young adult. So talk about the role music played in your childhood and whether or not you had any musical outlets as a kid before you picked up the guitar. You know, my growing up, my dad was just was a huge country music fan. And I mean, it, it, actually not just country, but but music in general, but 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 especially country. And so I was born in Virginia and grew up between Portsmouth, Virginia, and Springfield, Missouri. But when we were living in Virginia, we had a store that sold men's work clothes. Hmm. And um, and we would advertise on the country station there. At that time, it was WCMS. And so being a sponsor on the, on the radio station, we would get um, tickets to like country shows. Huh. And so I remember being probably, you know, 10, 11, 12, Going to see Johnny Cash and 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 Bill Anderson and Jan Howard. We saw I saw Hank Jr. when I was a kid before when he was still singing his dad song, oh, and yeah, wearing yeah. his wearing suits, and slicking his hair back before the you know before he fell off the mountain and before he became Bo Cephas. <laughs> right, right. And I remember, yeah, and so I saw Johnny Cash when it was the Carter the the, the show was um the Carter family. The Statler Brothers, Carl Perkins, and Johnny Cash. Jeez. Wow, wow. And, it, and I still I still remember it. And the crazy thing is, I was writing over at Seagale Publishing, which is Brad Paisley's publishing company, probably a month or so ago. And they have a lot of these Pat show print yeah. Yeah. Um, posters on the wall. And they had a Pat show print poster of that show that wow. I saw. Oh, That's wow. so cool. That's cool. <laughs> I would have stolen that. Oh, <laughs> I know. I thought about. It. I know. I'm just like, oh, Brad. He wouldn't care. He wouldn't care. Yeah. He's got money. He can buy another one. <laughs> he can buy another one. Yeah. Never know who did it. But it was. But I mean, to say right, exactly. But early on, music was. It was always there in the house. 
yeah. you know, and, and so it was just, it was just a fixture. And so I grew up listening to it and I just became a fan really of, especially country music for whatever reason, mm. it just resonated with me even in high school, you know, when all so many, you know, my high school friends were not listening to country and they were, and, and of course they're, I would listen to, to rock and roll or whatever because it was playing in their cars you know yeah but still for me i just always for whatever reason country was what i loved the most yeah and so even even today my wife um she's still like is amazed at what like rock and roll songs and bands that I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want to talk about country, I mean, I can go go as far back as you want to go. Right, right. Who are these Rolling Stones I keep hearing about? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, what are they? Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's funny. Now, once you did uh, start learning to play guitar, I think you were were living in Missouri at that point. Um, Right. I understand you've got a a pretty wild story about your guitar teacher kind of turning you on to a guy in, in Nashville that turned right. out to be pretty unscrupulous right. and, and kind of in a bizarre way kind of did sort of lead to your career. Talk about yeah. that story and, and, and what happened there. I mean, I feel a little bit, by, my story is a little, it's kind of between Forrest Gump and and those Lemony Snicket books, a series of unfortunate <laughs> events. Right. It's kind of a cross between the two (laughs) and so i had like you know i was graduated high school and was going to um go to college and major in broadcasting because i'd heard i knew bill anderson was a had been like a journalism or broadcasting major in georgia he had used that to get into music and it's like well if it works for bill anderson maybe it could work for me Hmm. so i was gonna i was going to uh Southwest Missouri State in Springfield at the time, and Monday morning, first day of the semester, and my first major class introduction to broadcasting. And the professor walks in. There's just a handful of kids in the class, and the professor walks in and says, "I'm sorry, the class has been canceled due to lack of interest." Oh man! <laughs> and it's like uh, unfortunate <laughs> event number one. Yeah. <laughs> and so, then so I I went a couple more semesters, and my family is basically blue collar and so I was paying my own way and it's not like my parents were saying young man you will get your degree and then you can go chase the music business they right. weren't saying that yeah. so I you know I just got tired of not having any money and so I quit school and started working at this paper products factory that made paper cups and and ice cream tubs and I worked at third shift in the tub department making <laughs> um, Kentucky fried chicken tubs and like well. Baskin Robbins ice cream tubs and right. so so I did that for like six months and then got laid off so it's like well, okay unfortunate event number two <laughs> right and so it's like well wow man this the school thing can really work and then like the job thing it's not really going great so I just started working at this temporary job service and then taking guitar lessons and there was a guitar teacher there in Springfield and he knew that I'd sang, and I'd started singing in church and whatnot. One day at the lesson, he says he's heard about this record label in Nashville called Chart Records, and that they're looking for singers, and I don't know where he heard that, right. um, 
there used to be this magazine, this like fan magazine in Nashville years ago called the Music City News. Oh yeah. yeah. They would have like these kind of classified ads or whatever. If I was guessing, it was probably that. So anyway, and then it just so happened that we had had a, a, an old forty-five of Lynn Anderson on on the same on chart records. Right. Well, apparently, so we thought, well, okay, yeah, we should like follow up and see what happens. So I. We call the guy, and and basically, long story short, he turns out to be a total rip-off con guy. Right. And um, I had saved up, you know, $3,000 or whatever, you know, and just didn't work in between my odd jobs and before I saving the money from the Kentucky Fried Chicken job. <laughs> right. And I had like $3,000 saved up. Well, what do you know? That was exactly how much a recording session oh, cost. Man. Yeah, and so we came to Nashville. I'm living in Springfield, Missouri, and we did this recording session. And and um, you know, months and go by, time goes by, and it's like one promise after another. And we, you know, little by little, start to figure out that we have totally been ripped off. Right. And so, my dad, while we were in Virginia, he had been a police officer, and he's this the work clothes store that we're talking about. He had a that was kind of a part time thing with that they had with my mother's parents right. but he was a police officer a detective and so he you know knew enough it's like when you think you've been ripped off you can go to the attorney general's office which i you know and then file a complaint and so this is where it gets like forrest gump like part <laughs> of the story so we were at the attorney general's office here in nashville and we're waiting to see someone and they knew why we were there and so while we're waiting, an assistant attorney general walks out and says, uh, Mr. Nichols, there's a producer from 60 Minutes on the phone, and they're investigating this Nashville record ripoff Whoa. scenario <laughs> that's, that's going on to a degree here. Would you like to speak with them? <laughs> oh, yes. We would definitely <laughs> like to speak with 60 Minutes. Yes. And so we told, you know, we filled them in and gave them the rundown, and so one of the producers from 60 Minutes called this guy posing as a wannabe singer oh, and wow. basically set up an appointment and whatnot. And so then my dad and I came, made another trip back to Nashville, and we met Mike Wallace. And, <laughs> just, you know, we basically walked in, ambushed this guy, walked in <laughs> on him, you know, meeting my dad and Mike Wallace. For right, awesome. <laughs> And so from that exposure... There happened to be a guy living in Springfield, Missouri, from ten minutes from us. His name was Cy Simon, and he was a he had a publishing company in Nashville. And uh, Wayne Carson, who wrote "Always on My Mind" and "The yeah. Letter," all these amazing songs. Wayne's in the Nashville Songwriter Hall of Fame, and so Cy basically, you know, took me under his wing and and um, was just a great mentor to me and. And um and I met him after that and and we got together and he started listening to my bad songs and, <laughs> and um so in a nutshell that's so so Sai basically saw the sixty minutes piece realized right. that you were from from Springfield where he was living and kind right. of reached out to you right exactly so when you when you talk exactly. about him kind of taking you under his wing or, or or mentoring you and you know you're a young green songwriter. What are some of the lessons about songwriting that you kind of learned from him in that in that early period when you were, you know, first kind of getting serious about this thing? I think the well, the, the 
the the other funny thing was at the time I really wanted to be a singer more than a more than a songwriter. I mean, hmm. I had been trying to figure out, and I had written a few songs, and so I would play him my bad songs, you know, and he would listen to, he would listen to my bad songs, and he knew that I wanted to to be a singer as well. And the quote that he told me one one particular day was he said if you want to hunt tigers you have to go where the tigers are hmm. <laughs> you know and it was like you can't do this if you're serious you you can't do this from springfield missouri mm. if yeah. you want to be in the if you want to be in country music you need to be in nashville sure wow. and so at like 20 years old i had this little band and so we took like two of the three guys in the band we packed up and and um like June of 1980, we moved to Nashville, and like I said, we had we had a band, and then that band broke up, and you know I got with these other guys, and but to me that was the greatest lesson, mm. yeah, um, I ever could have gotten. Wow. Was if you want to hunt tigers, you have to go where the tigers are. <laughs> right. So I moved to India. <laughs> 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 it's like oh. You know, that could have been a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back on it now, yeah, it seems like all of your uh, all of your moves kind of led to an unexpected, you know, nice next step. Like you, you basically paid three thousand dollars to get on sixty minutes. <laughs> um, yeah, I know, right? Like, like I said, I mean, I've like I just feel like I again between Forrest Gump and Lemmy Snicket, I just I kind of backed into the. I backed into it. And it took a publisher in Springfield, Missouri, to tell you that you needed to be in Nashville. Um, what, what was that move like? I mean, did, did you show up and, and go, okay, I guess i got to get a job? Or did you just kind of show up with your guitar in hand and say, how can well, I make some money with this thing? Like, what, what, what were your steps? Well, we had, we had, a, we had put, to, put a little band together, and we had found this, an agent that booked hotel lounges and whatnot. Mm. Um, and again, that was all from the 60 Minutes thing. Wow. Um, and so we had gigs moving, to, you know, when I when I got to Nashville. And so that band broke up with another band and another another buddy, a guy. And, well, he had an agent that was a bigger agent than the one of what I had. Nice. So he started booking us, and we had, you know, some better gigs, and we played, like, fair dates and we would back up like opry acts that maybe didn't have bands like i remember playing the show with jan howard and and we would be her backup band and i would sing like the, for all the songs that those duets that her and bill anderson had i would sing no. bill's part and <laughs> yeah. then like like chef woolly who had purple people eater and then he had that character ben colder and we would back him up like billy walker and charlie walker and opry acts. so we would do we were doing those things so we were we were gone all the time wow. and so we used to joke it's like man we got we got to stay on the road it's the only way we can pay for the gas <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> but that's like after about probably three years of that it's like man that's i gotta figure out a way to stay in town mm. i mean i i mean if i was just going to keep doing this well you, you might as well I, be based out of missouri right to nashville yeah right yeah so that would have been like 83, the last kind of incarnation of the band broke up, and 
And so there used to be this uh, theme park here in Nashville called Opryland USA. Oh, we so, know it well. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Many a summer day spent uh, on yeah, the Screaming Delta Absolutely. Demon. So you probably, y'all probably, you may have even seen me in the shows out there. If, if you so played I'll... over near the Rock and Roller Coaster in the <laughs> Little Deuce Coop Theater, then... <laughs> well, we... that would have been the 50s show. I was in, like, uh, there was a show called Sing Tennessee, which was, like, the bicentennial... Uh, or the or would a bicentennial centennial year of whatever it was of of uh, Tennessee. It was the Tennessee they homecoming year, show. and it, it all it had that's that what, logo was the was. big rocking chair with, with the, the flag quilt on it. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. I totally remember that. That's, yeah, that's what it was. So I did the show <laughs> called probably, King Tennessee. We there. probably saw you in that show. <laughs> we probably did. Yeah, and then. But because I'll tell you, because the other thing, y'all know, have y'all had a chance to talk to Luke Laird yet? No, no, not yet. Y'all know, you know, but you know, obviously, yeah, you know, yeah. Blue Claire and all the songs that he's written. Sure. So this has been several years ago now, like one of the first times we met, he said, dude, you're not going to believe this, but man, when I was a kid living in Pennsylvania, I came down here with my folks and uh, I got a picture of you. <laughs> you were doing a show at Opryland and I had this. I had on this like these like knee high white tube socks and like a <laughs> fanny pack, and I got to had my picture made with you. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and like all these years later, now he's Luke Laird. But it's, yeah, so it's it's crazy. But so I was working in these shows. I and, and one of the girls in the show, her name was Carrie Sly, and she sang in the in the um, country show, and. She was friends with a guy named Al Cooley. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so Al Cooley was a song plugger at Combine Music. Yeah. And so, which is where your dad, Woody, was also at, at right. Combine. Right. And so Carrie basically kind of got me an appointment to start playing my songs for, for Cooley. And so at that time... I, you know, Bob DePiro was there at the time, and a right. bunch of a, a bunch of you know serious big. I guess Chris Christopherson wrote there. Then yeah. I guess he still there then, probably. Yeah, yeah. John Scott Sherrill. Um, yeah, and so I'm playing. So I start playing Cooley my songs, and so they had this committee of Cooley and Woody and Beckham, right. Bob Beckham. They would all three listen and then decide kind of yay or nay. And it had to be, and, and for, for them to take a, an outside song from a guy that, from a writer that wasn't signed at Combine, it had to be unanimous. All right. three had to say yes, all three. And so I never could get all three. <laughs> uh, you know, I guess sometimes I'd get Woody and Cooley, but not Beckham, and then sometimes, you know, whatever. So I'm working in Opryland, learning, I'm clogging, you know, in the summer, and, and wearing these Davy, you know, like Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, burning up hot outfits, just right. sweating. Oh my God! Well, I, you know, at, at least you didn't have the job of like a fake blacksmith. I've always said that I think that's the most depressing job in the world is having to, having to do an ancient job in front of people to no. show how hard it is in the heat. Yeah. Um, right, or like yeah, like at Silver Dollar City or something. Like yeah. That. I, I would right. gladly derail this entire conversation and, and go down an Opryland path because it's it's kind of doing a lot for my soul. But it I is. feel like I have to ask you 
uh, about the the process now into your songwriting career. But um, afterwards, I, I would like to talk to you uh, about uh, how you felt when chaos came and, and about that ride. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I know this is like a whole other podcast. I know. <laughs> we, we need to start an Opryland podcast. I oh, got to be amazing. I know. Um, well, the, the earliest cut of yours as a songwriter that we were able to find was a Ronnie Millsap album cut called "This Time Last Year." If someone would have said that we wouldn't be together, except in the picture that stands on my dresser I would have never believed it my dear this time last year so somehow from from clogging in a Daniel Boone cap, you went to having a uh, Ronnie Millsap cut. You went all the way through the glass blowers and the funnel cakes and then came out with this album cut. So I'd love to know how that came about. I had seen in this, like in the Sunday paper here in Nashville, like in the business section, they would, there used to be this entertainment section um, where they talked about people that had gotten promotions or new jobs or whatever. And I had seen a, a blurb in the Sunday paper that it's one, a woman named Leslie Schmidt was the new song plugger at Millsap Galbraith Music Group. So that publishing company was an independent company owned by Ronnie Millsap and his producer, Rob Galbraith. And so I thought, well, if she's new, maybe she would be looking for new writers that she could get behind and she wouldn't be locked into having her core group of writers. Hmm. So I called my buddy Thomas Kane at BMI and, says, and said, can you get me an appointment with Leslie Schmidt? And, and so he did. So I, she said, bring me your five best songs. Hmm. And, I, and I did, and she said, uh, and, and I told her, I said, look, I know you see probably a, a tons of people just one time, but if you'll let me, I would love to come back and bring you more songs because I had figured I figured it's like, well, this is probably going to be a, a little bit of a process, and I'm, you know, probably not going to get a deal based on one meeting, and they're going to jump up and down, you know. Right. And so I had planned on coming, you know, calling her, you know, in a in a month or whatever, and seeing if I could play her some more songs. Well, by the end of the week, she called me back saying, "Do you have any more songs?" Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I've got a lot more songs. I've got a lot more songs. <laughs> I didn't expect yeah. this call. <laughs> I know. I did, really didn't. And so I can't remember what the first five was, but I think maybe of this next three was there was a so there was it was this time last year, mm. which I had written with John Vesner. And again, while I'm working in shows at, at Opryland, and so I'm on a break between shows that summer, burning up, clogging, mm. and I checked my codafone. <laughs> my my voice, right. you know, right, my right. answering machine, and I hear there's this message. It's like the Tim. This is Rob Galbraith from from Ronnie's office. Me and Ronnie been listening to a, have been listening to a bunch of songs today by a bunch of big deal songwriters, and we like this thing you and Vesner wrote the best wow. this time last year, and we and we think we're going to cut it. Wow. wow! And so, sure enough, they did. Man. And so at that time. You know, I mean, Millsap is 86. At that point in his career, that would be just like if Luke Bryan or Blake Shelton or Jason Aldean, whenever they're cutting today. Right. Everybody, the whole town wanted a Millsap cut. Right. Because they made such, he was a great artist, a great singer. They made fantastic records. They sounded amazing. 
And so everybody wanted a Millsap cut. Oh. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm like at Opryland, man, thinking, <laughs> you know, imitate Ernest Tubb. Right. <laughs> and like, and I get this call from Ronnie Millsap's producer. It's like, oh, holy crap. Right. And so they cut it. And so at that time, Millsap was selling, you know, I mean, to, to get into the business part for a second, you know, I mean, he the, the number of records he was selling, they knew if they cut that song and then it made the album, then they could pay me a little draw, which turned out to be $125 a week, was <laughs> um, what I was getting when I started. And so they knew already, it's like, well, Nichols, is no, there's no risk here with this guy. Right. Because he's yeah. already going to make, he's going to recoup the draw that we're going to pay him already because based on the number of records Millsap was selling. Yeah. And so that's, so he cut it, and then, um, so I signed there in December of 86. Wow. Man, and, throw um, away that Daniel Boone cap. Yeah, put down that, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the end of, that was the end of that. Take but these clogs like, and shove them. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. Well, the first time we see a Tim Nichols song appearing on the Billboard chart was uh, Mo Bandy's version of Brotherly Love, which was a, a song you wrote with Jimmy Stewart that got up into the right. into the 50s on the chart in 1989. Right. But two years later, that same song hit number two in Billboard in a version by Keith Whitley and Earl Thomas Conley. There's a bomb that brothers know, and it gets strong. Talk about the the journey that song took to becoming your first hit. Between um, working in shows at Opryland and then because that was seasonal then, and so I had this other kind of like part time, you know, wintertime job. Did y'all remember Po Folks Restaurant? Oh yeah. <laughs> well, they had really good. Had, they had good red beans. What and are rice. you doing to me, man? <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is like so, uh, walk down memory lane right here. This memory lane. So I had this. So I had a part-time gig making Poe Folks restaurant signs. We're Poe, but we're proud. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yep. right. Yep. Yeah, which Poe <laughs> Folks was based on that uh, Bill Anderson. Yet you're like another yep. Bill Anderson connection. <laughs> yeah, based on his song called Poe Folks. And so I, there was it was at this little shop in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. And so I I have two younger brothers, and we grew up. We're two years apart, and we fought to kill every day of our lives. You know, and we got <laughs> right. whipped every day of our lives growing up. And so I was thinking about them. And so when I got this idea for Brotherly Love, and so I just basically I wrote down the first two verses, the lyric and the melody. So I didn't, you know, when I showed up to the, to the work that day, I didn't have a tape recorder. I, and so I just had to sing it to myself <laughs> all day long yeah. till, till I could get home and sing it mm. into a into a tape recorder and so um there was this guy jimmy stewart that i've been writing some with he was from west tennessee and and he just out of the blue one day he mentioned he had a brother that he was concerned about was having some health problems and marital issues and whatnot and i said hey man did i ever mention this brotherly love idea to you he said no so i ran it by him and so we then wrote a bridge and a last verse Mm. 
and so we did the demo and and Mo Bandy cut it and then um and then the demo um Billy Dean sang the demo at that oh, wow. you know back then Bill, Billy Dean it was before he had a deal yeah. right um before he got his deal on Capitol and he was just singing demos you know like I mean like Garth and Trisha you know Trisha mm-hmm. was singing tons of demos back then right um so Billy said Man, if I ever get a deal, I'm going to record this. And, she, and he did. He got a deal with Capital, and on his first record, sure, sure enough, he, he recorded Brotherly Love. Wow. But it ended up not being as it wasn't a single. And then, the, like you said, the Mo single kind of didn't really get any traction. It really didn't do anything. And then Keith Whitley cut it. He cut it when he was work still working with Blake Mevis. You know, Blake Mevis was the producer on a, on a lot of several of those. Um, early Keith hits. Mm, yeah. Um, but then he ended up changing producers and, and getting with Garth Fundus, who, which was where you know he really kind of broke out when you say nothing at all and, yeah. and don't close your eyes and those things. Right. Um, and so the brotherly love, basically, just that cut just got shelved. Hmm. And um, and then I got another. Then I then he cut another song of mine called "I'm Over You." A song that I wrote with Zach Turner, which happened, which which I think was like the, I don't know, second or third single off of the I Wonder Do You Do You Think of Me album, yeah. which was the second album, and the album that they had just finished um, when Keith passed away, and then you know they were just basically going back through the vault at RCA, right. and it's like, well, what do we have? I mean, could we take these songs that that didn't make you know one album or another, and so they found brotherly love yeah and so garth took that and then basically built a whole new track around keith's vocal and they made it a duet with earl thomas conley and that so that was on the kentucky bluebird album man it had to it had to be a little wild to to think like hey i finally got my first two big top five hits as a songwriter but the artist is is no longer with us it was just I, the, and i remember the day the day that keith died i had been writing at a at another company um and i got you know we knew that that he had cut it and um i'm over you that he had cut i'm over you and so i got back to the office that evening and they said did you hear about keith right and i just thought oh man i'm over you's not gonna make the record Mm -hmm. that's what i you know that's (laughs) what i thought that was the first thing that popped into my head they said no he he passed away he died today and it's like oh my gosh and i you know, and then there's the when we found out that basically it was he died of an alcohol overdose or alcohol poisoning, and then the you know the first line of the course of I'm over you starts with you've heard I'm drinking more than I should. It's like, Oof. oh, 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 yeah, that's um, it was just strange. Yeah, yeah. you know, but the, the 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 thing is, the crazy thing is that like. I did. I play lots of songwriter shows, we like corporate events and whatnot. And I was doing a show last week with Rivers Rutherford and Neil Thrasher, and it was like for a healthcare group, people from like all over the all over the country. And and Rivers leaned over and said, "Man, why don't you play? I'm over you." Right. And um, so I said, "All right, let's. Go. We're in Nashville. You're all in Nashville. Let's go. Let's get real country." I said, "So how many Keith Whitley fans are there?" And it's like it's always surprising to me that I mean he. Still, even today, he's yeah. like a really loyal following. And the other thing yeah. is about that is like when I'm writing with new artists or new new writers or new artists, 
uh, like Mo Pitney and and William Michael Morgan and guys like that. It's like you wrote "I'm Over You," mm. and then they start you know they'll start singing "Where There's a Cloud on Me." There's a, and yeah. so that's like I just feel like Whitley man had he had he lived man that that star was just yeah. rising yeah. and For I sure. feel like it would it would have been interesting to see you know kind of between him and randy travis mm. yeah what, what would have happened yeah, yeah for sure you know one of the the great classics of country music of the 1990s was heads carolina tales california which was a, a big hit for jody messina in 1996 Tell us a little bit about that song. The idea for that came from this came from an audio book. Huh. Um, the main character in this book was this guy, Texas Jack Carmine, and things he was in trouble. Things weren't going well in Texas, and so the way he was going to decide, he knew he had to leave Texas, and he, the way he's going to decide where to go was um, he was going to flip a coin. Heads, he was going to go to California. Tails, he was going to go to Mexico. Hmm. So that's where it, it came from. Yeah, that, and so I wanted to like. California, I felt like it needed to be an alliteration, like Kansas or Kentucky or or the if we had one coast or the other. Yeah, it's Carolina, tails California. Right, right. It's perfect. And so um, sings better than so Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and so that's so that's the in a nutshell. That's the way that came about. She had already cut a song of mine for her first record. Uh, that I'd written with Zach Turner, the guy I wrote I'm Over You With, called You're Not in Kansas Anymore, which I think was which was her second single. And so um, we had heard that they were possibly looking for a duet for her and Tim. Hmm. Um, because McGraw, Tim McGraw, was co-producing Jody's record with Byron Gallimore, who's right. his producer as well. And so it's like, it just hit me, because we had pitched that a, a bit. I mean, some folks and girls had heard that. Um, but I just thought, man, this could be the perfect duet for them. Yeah. And so I called her and she said, well, just put it in my mailbox. You know, we I, I lived about five minutes from her at that mm. time back then in Mount Juliet. So I put it in her mailbox and then she called, I don't know, you know, a few weeks later saying we cut the song, but it's not a duet. Are you mad? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, of no, course I'm not. not. <laughs> right. No, I am not mad. <laughs> she said, do you want to hear Do you want to hear it? like absolutely yeah so yeah. i she said well come on over i'm at home now so she played it for me and sitting in her driveway in her car well, you know we talked about you writing that one with mark d sanders and you guys really hit on a streak there in the mid 90s we did yeah we did you had a big top 10 yeah. hit with uh, sammy kershaw then you had trace atkins number one single this ain't no thinking thing and reba's i'd rather ride around with you which hit the number two spot on the billboard country chart she's you guys find in each other that made this work so well well the thing is you know mark i mean he was just you know i mean he was not only were we having hits but i mean he was also writing hit songs with, with basically anybody that he got in the room with i mean him and mm. DePiro, 
John Gerard. They were having hits. I mean, he, he was just, he's just a, an amazingly talented guy. And I think for whatever reason, I, you know, because I I don't I don't really know how to explain it. I think yeah. I just a bunch of things lined up, and even to the like Alan Jackson, you know, that'd be all right. Yeah, that'd be all right. That'd be all right if everybody. I mean, Alan didn't cut many outside songs. Yeah. Um, and so that was a, a whole lot of fun. Um, but I think it was just, I mean, it was just pretty simple, honest, straight ahead kind of country songs. And there was something about, I mean, just those melodies he came up with. I just, they just went great with, you know, um, with the lyrics that, you know, he and I both were coming up with, you know. And you kind of alluded to just that that moment in time. I mean, Lee and Womack's I'll Think of a Reason Later was the first song you wrote that not only was a country hit, but also crossed over to the top 40 on the pop charts. And, and that, you know, that was happening with your songs pretty frequently in the early 2000s. You, you mentioned Alan Jackson's That'd Be Alright, and you have, you know, Terry Clark's I Want to Do It All and Girls Lie Too. These are songs that are not only just huge with the country artists, but that are crossing over to um, a more general audience as well. And, and the, the biggest example, of course, by far of that is, is Tim McGraw's recording of Live Like You Were Dying, which, which you wrote with Craig Wiseman. I went skydiving, I went... Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Blue Manchu. And I looked deeper and I spoke sweeter and I gave forgiveness I've been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying bit about how that song came together and just the experience uh, as a songwriter of writing something that garnered so much awareness and so many awards and so many accolades you know becoming part of a true classic i always say the day that craig and i wrote that song was just like any other day i mean we didn't we didn't have a clue we were going to write that song that day it wasn't like i came in and said hey man i got this idea of i live like you were dying or that he said you know it just started with me telling him a story that I'd heard the day before about a friend of ours who'd had a, a health scare. And then that reminded him of a story that he'd heard on NPR. And so we just started talking about, you know, living and dying and trying to put living and dying in the same, in the same line, thinking maybe that could be the, if we, if we came up with the right one, that could be the title of a song. Right. And so we were just, you know, we just like, dying to live and things like that and and Craig said what about live like you were dying it's like dude I love that yeah let's write that let's write that and the crazy thing was at that time I mean Craig and I had been writing together for a while and and he'd been having success and I'd been having success but for whatever reason together man we just were had been uh, up until that day had just kind of been snake bit it seemed like but but then that day came along, and that 
song came down and so you know it's the other thing is like i say it started out like any other day and then it became like no other day <laughs> right right and, you know and um missy gallimore heard it first and she took it to tim and and uh he said i you know it's like well i love this i'm going to record it and i i feel like you know because at that time his dad you know tug mcgraw was fighting a terminal illness and and i feel like for me what he was going what tim was going through personally i feel like he that translated to his vocal Mm, performance and so he debuted it on the acm awards and i've had some sweet moments great stories for all these years but seeing him debut that song at the acm awards and craig and i were there we were on the floor but we were way in the back um and just the whole production and his vocal performance and all that was just was my idea of perfection yeah you know in my mind there's nothing that could have been improved one iota on that on that performance and so it was just my sweetest moment in the music business and so craig says that year when he debuted it we were way in the back but the next year we were way in the front (laughs) (laughs) right well, you know, after that huge success, you, you know, you went on to continue to write more hits, hit after hit after hit. I mean, in 2009, you and Brett James wrote The Man I Want to Be, which uh, Chris Young took to number one and kept there for three weeks. That I want to be a stay man. I want to be a brave man. I want to be the kind of man she sees in her dreams. God, I Remarkable to see somebody topping the charts in 2009, who was also topping the charts in 1990. Um, you know, you think about the changes in the music business and the changes right. in style and, and relationships and everything. What what would you say is the secret to, to how you've been able to adapt and not only stay in the game but be kind of an MVP in the game? I just feel like one is I is I I still I love it so much. Hmm. I just I love it. And there will be days, it doesn't matter, we, you can have the best gig in the world, which I feel like I do. Yeah. But there are still those days, it's like, man, I, just, I don't really feel like doing this today. Right. Till I get to, but then I get to the office and I get with my whoever I'm writing with that day and it's like, I love this. I mean, it's mm. like medicine to me, it's like therapy, it's like, it's juice, you know. And, I, yeah. and again, it just goes back to the fact that I still love it as much today as I did, you know, when Ronnie cut this time last year in 1986, you know, 32 years later, I still Mm -hmm. love it that much. And, you know, and the fact that I've been so fortunate and and been able to kind of hang around for as long as I have, it's like you have these just relationships that just mean, that mean so much to you, you know, and it's like, and, and not just, not just like with with Mark, you know, and and Tony Martin and 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 Bob, who I've, you know, all these and Craig and Jeffrey and guys, 
Jeffrey Steele, guys that I've known for years and years. Yeah. I mean, it's also what I love is like the new relationships and the you know writing with with new artists and and, and new writers. And so I have a we started a publishing company. Um, me and I have two partners, Rusty Gaston and Connie Harrington, who's a is a great writer and wrote I Drive Your Truck and just a bunch of hits. And so we have we have a publishing company. It's a joint venture with Warner Chapel, and we're in our twelfth year, I guess. And now we've you know we have fourteen writers and Ben Hayslip, and to have watched what he's done as far as like the you know when he and Dallas Davidson and Red Aiken started writing, you know they became the Peach Pickers and all of this all of the success that they've had and and new writers. And now we have, there's a, a girl that writes for us. Her name is Emily Wiseband, and she's like. She's writing with Keith Urban and Sam Hunt and and Thomas Rhett, and she's signed a pop deal. She's working on a pop record in L.A. with Mike Elizondo, and it's like hmm. so to see like new writers and to be able to be a part of their career and and um, it's just I think music is the fountain of youth, man. Mm, that's, that's awesome. That's incredible. Well, you know, and talking about you know you and and uh, and Connie Harrington, you know, having your your publishing company together, and I know you guys, you know, or have written some stuff together. And Jana Kramer had a, a top five hit with with I Got the Boy a couple years ago, which you guys uh, had written. So obviously, you're you're both very much active, successful songwriters, but you're also you know running this this music publishing company together. How? have your years of success as a songwriter kind of influenced your approach to the business when you're wearing that publishing hat? Um, I felt like it was important, especially at like after live, like you were dying. It's like, okay, what is the next step going to be? You know, I would like to, what's, what is next? Yeah. And so it just, it made sense to me the the progression and evolution of a publishing company made sense. And mm. Connie and I had talked about that even years prior because Way back early on, you remember the writers, there was a company, a publishing company called the Writers Group, um, Tom Schuyler and Overstreet and Fred Knobloch, and it was like this publishing company that writers owned. Right, yeah. And it, and it, was, it just seemed like, that was what a cool concept. And so I feel like for us, it's always been, while we have on our publisher hats, we understand writers and their issues. Yeah, and I right. feel like we might approach the philosophy of a publishing company maybe a little bit differently sure. because of the fact that we're part owners, that we're principals in the company, but we were writers first. Right, right. I just feel like it's the best of both worlds. Well, one last uh, question for you. This is... Uh, this is my most obnoxious question, but but I'm I'm going to ask it anyway. That's tough competition. <laughs> so you've had you've had four Billboard number one hits in your career, um, and in 2012, Dustin Lynch hit number two on the Billboard country chart with Cowboys and Angels. Now you've had the four number ones, but you've had eight number two singles on the Billboard country chart. And to be honest with you. I would give my pinky for a number two single on the Billboard country chart. But is there a little party that's like, dang it, why do I keep getting blocked from number one <laughs> as many times as I have? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, it's very perceptive that you would notice. Yeah. Because it's like, because that's the thing. Because everybody, everybody only asks, how many number ones have you had? Right. Right. 
Nobody asks, hey, man, how many top five? Hey, how many songs have, <laughs> how many, how many songs have gone to number two? Right. Uh, well, eight. <laughs> you know, so, but, so, I mean, it's a little bit of like, you know, that is, de- that is definitely a writer nice problem to have you know i would uh, i would i would personally uh, kill to have a, a number two much less eight of them so but uh well so that's <laughs> what i mean and that's what you get i mean people like oh yeah nobody feels sorry for you <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well and you know what and when, when it comes to cashing those checks you might rather have six weeks at number two than one week at number one anyway <laughs> that's like a number one Right, three right. weeks exactly. number. <laughs> right. exactly. exactly. Close enough. Yeah, they got to change the formula. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, well uh, right. Tim, this has yeah. been a lot of fun, and and uh, we look forward to talking to you again when we launch our Memories of Opryland uh, podcast. <laughs> but no, this was a lot of fun, man. Absolutely. All right, gentlemen, give a shout next time y'all are in town. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. With a lot of life before me When a moment came that stopped me on a dime I spent most of the night